welcome to the Foundations of Occupational Science course podcast. I really hope that you enjoy being able to listen to this course content on the go while you're engaging in other occupations even. Thank you so much. Welcome everyone. This is another discussion and uh, interview that I am really excited to share with you as clinicians that may be getting exposed to occupational science for maybe maybe the first time. Um, so uh, I got an opportunity, I think it was about two years ago from now that I joined um, the United States, uh, sorry, the Society for the Study of Occupation in the United States of America or SSO USA which we've uh, referred to in a previous conversation in a prior module. Um, but that's one of, uh, you know, the United States Association that's really dedicated to supporting um, the development of occupational science in the United States um, with scholars. And actually what I've learned um, over the years that I've gotten to be in touch with them is that they're actually now making a really explicit commitment to partnering with field clinicians and blending, you know, that, world of kind of more scholarship with also appreciating what occupational science means in practice. Um, so it's kind of exciting. I got to be kind of on the ground floor of some of those conversations by just, um, you know, passively joining in their virtual conference uh, while I was um, a student at uh, University of Utah. I'd just taken the course in occupational science that we've talked about. And I felt really welcome to join the virtual conversation. It was so exciting, the conversations that were they were having. And I, I was seeing how it was related to what I was doing in practice. And um, Dr. John White, um, who you're going to meet today, put out an open invitation um, during the, the business meeting saying that they were looking for a techie millennial to help with their journal community because uh, they were working together as a team to kind of develop their, soon we're going to get our own journal uh, uh, for occupational science in the United States through the SSO. And he created an opening. He expanded the field for, you know, somebody that you know, I haven't gotten a PhD before and I've only taken one class in occupational science. Um, but um, I responded to the call for a techie millennial and I got to join a committee and be part of the conversations that, you know, developed into this journal. Um, so anyway, that's how I got connected um, with Dr. Uh, John White. And what I'm excited to share with you guys that are getting to know occupational science for the first time, um, if you have heard about occupational science before, there's a strong, there's a strong, strong likelihood that maybe it got said to you, oh, that's a PhD program. You got to go to a separate school in order to talk about that or, um, oh, Occupational science, that's something that started at the University of Southern California. It's kind of a hoity-toity Ivy Tower sort of thing. It doesn't really have much relevance to practice. Um, those are some common things that I've interacted with before, you know, getting my feet in the water in the occupational science world. And I think that, uh, you know, getting to interact with John was key for me in realizing that that isn't necessarily the most accurate framing of occupational science and that, in fact, a majority of occupational scientists, uh, especially in the United States, actually started um, started as clinicians, just like us. Uh, and so what I want to do is, uh, you know, in, I'm, I'm, I'll stop talking pretty soon so John can kind of um, introduce himself, but what I love to explore in this discussion with John is looking at um, how 
how like he did positions himself as as a clinician and later occupational science in relation to occupational therapy history and occupational science history um but also sort of explore this amazing opportunity that we've gotten by not having the opportunity to develop a science pace at the beginning of our founding which luckily we've explored in our history module or earlier in this lecture that you've explored here is we actually have this great opportunity that we've gotten to develop our science base from clinicians that in many cases have had decades of field experience. And um, I will hopefully get to explore with John his occupational history and becoming an occupational therapist a bit that you might be surprised just how much we have in common with him, even if you're a millennial, even if you're a zennial. <laughs> Some of the challenges that John uh, was navigating on the front lines of his practice um, in the um, late 70s and early 80s, and that drove him and motivated him to become a therapist, you might be able to connect to uh, today in some of your occupational history. Um, so I want to really bring together that we actually have a lot more in common than we think. And there's probably a lot that you could really relate to and that you can build partnerships with the occupational sciences scientists that are here in the United States and those that are around the globe. Um, so, John, uh, I, do you mind um, <laughs> introducing yourself a little bit, too, and um, maybe just uh, contextualize a little bit, um, maybe some of your recent background, and um, we'll kind of go into maybe a little bit talking about your origin story with occupational therapy. Yeah. Um, thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here, Josie, and uh, appreciate that overview of uh, why we're here and how I'm uh, speaking with you today. Um, I I fell into occupational therapy. Um, I was, uh, my dad was a doctor. I loved all things health care related and uh, was kind of focused on, um, on a career in medicine uh, when I realized that I had not had much of a sterling uh, academic career in college and probably wasn't going to get into med school um, and uh, worked for a year with a good friend of mine who was a jeweler and kind of discovered art and craft. And um, and then I, I, I literally uh, decided I love the craft part of this work, but selling things to people to feed me is, is the hard part. And I'm probably not going to be successful and I should probably look back at healthcare. And so I looked at a, a, several fields and found that PT was probably best suited for who I was at that time and where I wanted to go with my career. Applied, did not get into a fairly competitive program back in South Carolina at the medical university. And uh, because there was a brand new OT program that had not, uh, it got accredited a year early didn't have time to recruit students. Uh, they were pretty desperate to get a class. And they actually asked the PT and nursing uh, and social work programs, have you got people that you think might be a good fit for OT? And so I found out about it secondhand that I had applied to OT school. And uh, and so I, I was set up with an interview with a, a, a phenomenal OT who worked in a clinic that did almost everything that an OT department could do in a, in a um, medical setting, you know, pediatrics, mental health, geriatrics, 
uh, the range of physical rehabilitation, hand therapy, uh, and it integrated crafts in a way that you never see or very rarely see anymore in occupational therapy setting. And I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of a nice fit for what I was interested in. I'll follow this up. And if I get in, I think I'll try it out. And the more I, I got in and the more I learned about occupational therapy, the more I realized it was really a better fit for me than physical therapy. Um, uh, I met a woman who was in physical therapy school who uh, later uh, agreed to marry me. And, uh, and Bonnie and I have compared notes a lot about our uh, professions over the years and have worked literally in the same clinic uh, a number of times and um, have, have had a great uh, life and shared careers together. Um, but as I got into practice, my education was very medical model. Um, and I didn't know to really call it that until years later, but that's what it was. And, and I loved it because that, that was fulfilling that, that part of me that had sought that out. You mind if I set some of the context too of this discussion where part of what we're exploring is how we situate ourselves as occupational therapists and in your case as an occupational scientist. And I'm hoping that all of you out there are starting to see yourself as emerging occupational scientists in, in this practical way. So it's helpful for all of us to think about how are we situated in this historical context and what are some of these threads that, um, where did they come from? Where did they start and how do we relate to them today? I know from previously talking to John that um, while he was going through his initial stages of OT education and starting to enter the field, just to set some of that historic context, it, it, am, I, am I right that it was kind of in the late 70s that you were yeah, going to? Yeah, I started to... school at 76. Okay, so that yeah. was probably getting pretty far into, it was in the first um, decade or two of the development of Medicare. And it was right as we were starting to really consider um, deinstitutionalizing a lot of the mental health sector, right? Is that kind of right to your <laughs> approximation being there? It was or beginning. It was beginning about that to be make a conversation in in the discourse of kind of shining a light on a lot of um, harms that institutional um, mental health settings were having. Were um, you know, this is sort of triggering language, but, you know, people felt that they were just like human, human storage units or something like we weren't really engaging folks in the mental health. So they, they're starting to create maybe legislative conversations about what it looked like to deinstitutionalize the mental health sector. And I think at that time, that's where probably a majority of U uh, of OTs in the U.S. maybe had employment. Is that true to your perspective? Well, um, it was still a large percentage. Um, Maybe you know, like 25%, something like that, like a quarter of OTs. At least, yeah, I would say about a, about a quarter. And those were in um, typically the large uh, mental health institutions, but also um, the smaller hospital-based clinics. Um, you know, I did, I did um, an internship in a fairly large regional hospitals, um, mental health rehabilitation center. And that, you know, they had, uh, everything from again, lock unit to, um, outpatient services. And it was very robust. And there were probably, 
five occupational therapists employed um, in that facility, and um, and I did another one in a in a, uh, a community mental health center that was all outpatient based, uh, and I would say that they averaged uh, seventy five to hundred clients, um, in and had uh, again a fairly robust occupational therapy staff of uh, probably three um, occupational therapists and five uh, OT assistants. So you got to have, in some cases, one of the, maybe like the last uh, vantage points as, a, as an OT student and, and to some extent in the field where you got to see that baton getting passed of some of the more, you know, probably some of the practices that were happening with mo- OT in the mental health settings that were getting divested from probably had some of those uh, those uh, more craft based, more occupation based monikers of like the founding you know school of thought, and then kind of in life time as you were going through education, you were probably seeing that shift towards more of the Medicare based and more of a medicalized model and. Um, what I'm hearing from even your occupational narrative too is you, you came from a cultural context that really highly valued that, that that yeah. was something that really um, showed um, esteem and, and probably, uh, you know, some of the things that we're exploring here too is just how much our connection to our like ancestors and sort of the occupations of our family system can like have a, a, a drive on kind of how we occupationally adapt in our own lives. Um I imagine that's something that a lot of us can connect to today because I know um, I went to my uh, master's degree right in 2015 where I noticed that um, we would talk a lot about a lot of the corporations that were coming in and taking over the therapy contracts for skilled nursing facilities that were owned usually by more, um, they used to be community-based orange, quote-unquote, mom-and-pop based nursing facilities. And I got to see kind of some of that initial wave in Eastern Washington of more of the therapy contracting companies coming through. And I know probably everyone on here, you know, if you're from Gen X, you probably saw the first stages of um, the PPS system getting recalibrated. And now we're living through PDPM and PDPM and a transition to value-based care um, even though it was in the, in the late seventies, sounds like you've had your fair share of probably being a nervous OT student of well, where am I going to go? How yeah. is the system going to work? How are we going to relate to yeah. this? Yeah. I, I wish I'd had the foresight <laughs> to kind of anticipate some of that. Um, mostly I've, I've analyzed it in retrospect. Um, but a big part of what was happening at that point, um, was, um well there were there were a number of factors the deinstitutionalization um was a really important movement that got waylaid by a lack of funding and uh, i won't go into the politics of it um though i'm tempted but basically the governments realized if we deinstitutionalize these people will save a lot of money by not running these, you know, um, 24, seven, 365 care centers. Uh, and a lot of these people will be all right in outpatient and they can do some independent living. Um, and, and we'll have some community support. Well, very little of the community support was realized. And so, um, you know, I, 
I believe, and there's there's a good bit of research evidence to support that um, our criminal justice challenges and our um, houselessness and homeless-based populations are uh, at least an indirect and sometimes direct result. Right, of, victims uh, of that divestment area. And I, that is something that I, I would, from knowing you, and uh, hopefully we'll get to spell this out for those that are watching this here, um, in the other interview that we're including in this module, we have some discussion about um, what's called like performative activism or giving lip service to a program and not necessarily showing up with that tangible effort. You know, one of the things that um, is a value that I have that's consistent with occupational therapy and occupational science is that pragmatic idealism, right? We have ideals and aspirations and things that we want to aspire to as part of, you know, human values for human betterment. And one of the wonderful things about occupational therapy is we've always kind of wanted to show up in an active way and have some sort of a tangible result as the product of, you know, maybe our interventions, we can't perfectly clarify them, but we're going to get somehow to a functional outcome and some sort of meaningful, you know, demonstration of act. And what I'm hearing from you, John, is you maybe got to see some of that tragedy of maybe a lot of lip service paid to the notion of the institutionalization but it really was almost just a transfer of funds to the incarceration system or, yeah. um, you know, really, uh, and you policing. Know, into policing. And, yeah. and that's something I, I wonder, I, I imagine this maybe would take some post reflection on your part too. And maybe you've done some of it is it's interesting where you're positioned in the historic context as an OT student starting to, even if you're not aware of it, getting to observe some of this actually taking place where you were in a position where you could see what OT was like before and, and what the infrastructure looked like before. And you could almost bear witness to what was lost. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and another powerful factor that happened, uh, simultaneously was the development of, uh, or the evolution of psychotropic medications. Mm. And suddenly the, the service, one of the services that had been valued by occupational therapy, which was keeping clients occupied and better managed, uh, and hopefully, uh, living a, a somewhat higher quality of life in their institutions, uh, was not as important because the psychotropic medications. You could replace had, it with just this medication without having to pay the salary or the benefit package of frontline staffing that could mediate the same result with maybe a higher quality of life. That's right. Which in yeah. some ways mirrors too, because um, what I'm learning about now in my own studies is looking at um, the moral treatment movement, which I think even predates some of the arts and crafts movement. Yes. So we know yes, that OT absolutely. connects to arts and crafts movement, but if you look even before that, there was by a moral treatment 100, movement. By, yeah, at least by 100 years. So the moral treatment movement as was of a similar vein to that of it's, you know, maybe much more humane that we engage and we have these benefits of engaging people in meaningful activity. And that also got shut down in a similar way to what you're saying. Once there was a replacement of that and it became more mediated by the emerging Western medical system and the United States medical system, they actually just 
squashed that down and kicked it out. <laughs> right, right. Well, as Adolf Meyer pointed out in his um, really foresightful um, analysis of, of what occupational therapy could be and the role that occupation would play in it, um, there was more room in the state-supported hospital systems, asylum systems, to um, experiment with occupation and learn how it could really help and serve those that population uh, than there was in the private hospitals. The private hospitals, um, you know, were concerned that families would would see the see their family members being abused by asking them to do activities around the grounds or in the, in the workshops or in the facilities. Um, and so it was much more restricted and there were arts and crafts opportunities in those, perhaps even richer ones, um, uh, or more supported ones in the private facilities. But, but again, that was that, that tug between state funding, private funding, uh, you know, pre-insurance days really, but how are we going to take care of these people in need? So, the, so yes, imagine, it, was, yeah. it, was a, it was a big dilemma. And, you know, over the next certainly 20 years, and I think it even took less time than that uh, from the mid-70s, the, the mental health psychosocial component of occupational therapy uh, dropped from that, let's say, 25% workforce down to about three and even less, even smaller. Similar to the percentages that we have that explicitly identify themselves as quote unquote mental health OTs. Um, I'm personally an advocate, especially the more I learn about occupational therapy history and occupational science and our founders, where I think you mentioned Adolf Meyer and Adolf Meyer, he, um, I think he ended up going in the direction of psychology and psychiatry but he was an he early was adopter yeah, he was um, very yeah we have like two very prominent psychiatrists that were big champions of occupation-based practice um if i if i'm accurate i think Aleph meyer is somebody to credit for some of speaking into words the biopsychosocial what we say yes. frame of reference, right? In, yes. in occupational therapy terminology. Uh, but he was an early champion of saying, you know what? I don't know if we can disconnect these systems. I don't know if we really can uh, really separate all these things and have them be cohesive. So me personally learning about our history and our science, I personally champion that all OTs are mental health OTs because yeah. uh, it's really difficult to be occupation-based without taking into account the, that part of somebody's occupational profile. And I think it's actually a disservice to our patients if we don't acknowledge that as part of yeah. our practice in every yeah. setting personally. And I'm going to be a big advocate for that. Um, but at the same time, we did used to have a strong tradition of OTs developing our practices, developing our livelihood in more of a mental health sector that got divested because of changing policy interests and I would say, um, you know, to be so bold as somewhat performative activism in the late 70s and 80s, where we divested from the infrastructure we did have and didn't really follow up with the good. We, yeah, yeah, we didn't follow up and we didn't advocate. And and it's and it's that that was a, that 
also intersected with the time in which I was fairly apolitical. I really didn't want <laughs> didn't want to be involved in politics. I, I I didn't see it as a useful way to occupy my time. And it took, you know, at least five, if not 10 years for me to begin to realize that life is political. And if you don't get involved, you're, you're making a comment in a, in a negative way. <laughs> you're, you're letting things happen without having an influence. And, and, and it took another 10 years to apply that, at least another 10 years for me to get involved more professionally in one might say the political structures, the, the national and state organizations and advocating. And, and what I realized in retrospect was that our national association dropped the ball. It, it allowed these changes to happen. Um, and again, I think for economic reasons more than anything else and, and lack of political influence, we know. A disorienting dilemma in a way that um, I think something that I regret that I didn't get to highlight more in the module that uh, the, the lesson that talks about disorienting dilemmas mm. is realizing how much you know your your livelihood is really connected to you know your survival as an occupational yeah. being and especially if you're living with um, if you have families if you have if even I think this is especially true too of any occupational therapists that come from more minoritized backgrounds it's not a it's not a small thing getting through these systems to the point that you can access a bachelor's degree or a master's degree um we can look back you know at some of the choices that our um ot ancestors and and legacies made but i imagine we can probably identify with them that if you're at a place where you know being more of that activist and and coming out it's terrifying it's terrifying to potentially risk your livelihood by challenging some of these shifting policy structures because the more you explore the history of the um physical health system in the united states um you know and, and john i think we'll get a chance too to explore how your life path is also now involved taking a look at where that where that money did go like where how how does um incarceration how does that relate to occupational well-being and how that evolved those systems, they, they are, they, they can be somewhat violent in the United States and they can be very, um, not very understanding and, and it, they can make it very clear, you know, that activism and change are not welcome conversations. Right. Right. So, um, I think we all can connect to, you know, understanding where some of those trade-offs went. And, um, I think too, one of the things I want to challenge our, um, students to consider that AOTA, like it or not, it's a reflection of those of us that are in the field. It is a volunteer organization. It is a member-led organization, and it can be an easy thing to sort of scapegoat and target out and have it be, wouldn't it be nice if all the problems are AOTA and not something that's also a reflection of, of our values and where we, uh, so I just want to say, like, this is a challenging thing for all of us to navigate, and it can be easy to be in a state of judgment about things in the past and I've been angry about it. I, I totally get it. Um, but if you really think about it, we're still facing these challenges today. And, you know, we often do make some of those compromises in order to financially sustain the life that we're looking for. And these are not easy questions. And that's kind of why we have to navigate this together with some mindfulness about what it means to actually 
shift these systems today? What opportunities do we have today to maybe get involved? And I would be curious, John, too, I'm wondering how did that evolution sort of take place? Because you're saying you got to a place where at your initial stages in your career, you were kind of like blind to some of the political context that was going on. Maybe you were passively observing it, but it wasn't something that was as relevant. And I know you said at the time when you previously discussed this with me that um, you were really, you know, developing your career in a very promising way. You were very diligent at the medical model. You really created some of those really, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of those bright spots in your initial career and kind of how you actualize them now? Yeah, I, um, you know, I was focused on, you know, life balance and uh, and developing my practice chops. And, um, you know, I had, I'd had some wonderful field work experiences in both psychosocial and, uh, physical disability realms and, um, and decided that I, I really needed to develop the skills within the physical realm and got to work in some, um, very innovative physical rehabilitation settings and um and i think was recognized for my ability to um integrate um you know new knowledge uh you know i was an early uh mdt certificate for adult hemiplegia treatment and that kind of set me on a path of working in neurological realm. I uh, did a lot of work with uh, spinal cord injury and head injury. Um, like standardized protocols was something that it sounded like you were pretty interested in was a very, how do we really um, make OT esteemed and reputable by implementing, uh, you know, almost I would classify them not in a way to disparage it as like more sterile and more clinical and more linear. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. You know, because that was, that was recognized um, both within the field and by, you know, my colleagues in PT and medicine and nursing and social work as uh, in speech therapy as the way to be in practice. This is the way we how to secure our future. Just like it's a question today of, you know, the more standardized we can make our approach, uh, it has the sense of we'll have safety with that. Yeah. And because, because I had an intuitive appreciation for what occupation was at the time, though I didn't call it that I called it activity because Mm -hmm. that was predominant word that we applied to it. Um, I, I used it in practice and I looked for opportunities for, um, you know, a person's interests to fuel creativity about ways to integrate that interest into their therapy. But I did it surreptitiously. I did not own it. I did not. Kind of like breaking the rules in a way. I think we talked about that earlier, that sometimes like doing these actual stuff that you remembered probably and got to experience from um, the more old school occupational therapy at the time and what was taking place, it almost felt like you're breaking the rules are kind of like a bowl in a china shop. You're breaking down the standardized protocols by 
having the client sort of direct through their values and their interests and their occupations. You were maybe doing it, but it um, was a little bit off the books. And, 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 uh, it, and it felt, it felt like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't really being professional. Uh, you know, I remember a client who uh, loved to play hacky sack and uh, because of his head injury, uh, although he was walking, you know, when you saw him walk, you wouldn't say he had much of a disability. Um, his balance was not that solid. And so I modified it to play with a balloon. And that gave him time to respond and react. And we slowly worked down to, um, you know, closer and closer activities to playing with hacky sack. And, um, you know, and I remember playing with him in the gym one day with the, uh, with the balloon and a PT walking by. Gosh, it must be nice to be able to play all day. And they said it with, again, that kind of edge of, are you really being a therapist? Um, and, and so had I been where I got to later with my understanding of what occupation is all about, I would have said, Oh yeah, it is. It is. To be, to be able to tap the motivation of this person in their balance work, um, more than standing on that balance platform that you're going to put them on later today and just have them balance on the platform for balance sake. Sort of a possibly reflective question for you, John, too, in considering some of the context that occupational science has challenged me to consider and, and to think about um, how in building off the arts and crafts movement, where if you take a look at how industrialization has shifted uh all humans kind of away from, you know, uh, I think we have that idea of occupational alienation or alienation from our labor, the outcomes of doing more functional activity and meaningful activity as part of our daily life and how the arts and crafts movement was a resistance to that saying like, we know we need this as part of our identity, as part of our culture, as part of our whole. But as we shifted to more of an industrialized system in the United States, there was, I think, a lot, especially for those that are European and Caucasian, a sense of like a strong incentive to repress those drives in us. Um, and that, that seems to be part of being in a more medicalized system is you got to repress that sense of creativity and play and potential for artistic expression. I've almost had to do my own um, OT treatment for myself since leaving academia in some ways because I have really repressed those impulses for play um, out of fear that um, you'll get chastised or corrected or something. And I think that's a beautiful thing that occupational science challenges us as all occupational beings to consider how has our industrialization, colonialization, our culture challenges to repress these parts of ourselves and where we've had like pressure Sure. Did you feel like there was maybe part of that adapting to a medical model or wanting to uphold a certain image that maybe had um, like a sense of encouraging you even just as an occupational being yourself to repress those more at the beginning? You said you did have some artistic impulses, but you felt like, ah, I got to put those to the wayside. I got to repress and compromise them to do this thing. Um. Well, certainly in the professional realm, 
it it was very that was a very strong constraint and restraint on my ability to create and innovate in the way that that I thought would have been ideal and I didn't have the I didn't have the uh, confidence in an alternative point of view the language or maybe even something to connect to that seemed connected to science because I think something that's still current today and in, in, in wanting to be a science-based profession is if you're looking to science to be your guidepost and how it's currently branded and embraced in the United States and in the West is it is this sterile, clinical, standardized, removing as much of the qualitative domain as possible so that you have just the the bare bones structures to look at. Um, so if you're looking at that to guide you um, as an occupational therapist, it's not going to give you much permission to explore those other things. Right. This might be a good context to think of because it sounds like you really did, uh, you evolved in your career. You almost, I wonder if you almost topped out too in some of the professional development realm because it, it sounds like you were very successful in building these programs in the hospitals that you're working in. And there was something in you that also wanted more. So it sounded like kind of at a midpoint in your career, you were exploring and looking at, I know you mentioned before that you had an impulse of being interested in teaching these models that you were starting to master in the medical context. Right. right. I, um, yeah, again, I was getting recognition. I was doing some continuing education work on a small scale in, again, in the regional uh, context and mostly within the facilities um, within which I worked. Um, and Bonnie and I uh, had a wonderful opportunity um, to work uh, overseas. We worked in Malaysia for a year and a half. And, you know, again, we did some uh, some teaching at the national level there. And, you know, and I got um, I got some reinforcement for that. And it it fueled my interest in teaching and uh, having graduated with a bachelor's degree, which was um, the primary d- degree that was available in 1978. Um, I uh, realized I needed to get a master's degree. And so uh, that got me interested in going back to graduate school. And by this time, I'd been working for 12 years as a practitioner. And I certainly hadn't topped out, but I, 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 had, developed, I had developed expertise that was recognized um, by my peers and, uh, and supervisors uh, as, as worthy of, of sharing and, um, and teaching others. And, and so, um, I, I had again, a, a wonderful opportunity to go to graduate school at University of Southern California. Um, and I really hadn't paid a lot of attention to academic reputations and that sort of thing, but, but the people who, uh, I was asking, you know, where should I apply? And, you know, most people said, well, these are the, these are the strong schools in the country, um, that you should consider. And, um, so USC was among those. I, uh, I got a great opportunity to serve as a teaching assistant, uh, again, sharing my, my rehab skills and my, Talk about disorienting, uh, disorienting and transformative experiences. 
graduate school blew my mind wide open. Uh, I had no idea that I would be exploring anthropology and sociology and uh, neuro, neuroscience in the same, in the ways that graduate school. To bring the historic context in for those that are joining here. So you just kind of by accident in some ways following that, oh, I want to teach and I'll look into, and you almost like stumbled into this back door into a really amazing time and place for occupational therapy history and certainly the apex of occupational science history in the United States. Because you were on the ground floor as a entering master's student, um, kind of, you said, a teaching assistant, so kind of like a humble apprentice and you get to be a fly on the wall and, and be an active participant into those initial conversations that we're linking out to in this course. There's not time and space to cover all the fodder that there is for occupational science history and occupational therapy history. Um, but you were there with Elizabeth Yerksa, Florence Clark, um, um, and then so, yeah. Gailey Frank, and um, you got to be classmates, I think, with Wendy Wood, which is, I think, one of the scholars we'll get to link out to, and um, USC, Pierce, too. Jeannie Jackson, um, Sue Knox, um, you know, it just was a phenomenal cohort of people because uh, this was 1989 that I went back for the master's, and that was the year that USC approved the PhD in occupational science to begin. And so uh, Doris and Jeannie and Sue and, and others um, were, uh, were in that first cohort of doctoral students. And I was a master's student and I was able to take uh, a couple of elective courses that coincided with, with that cohort. And I sat in the room and my mind again was blown completely because the level of discussion that I was hearing and the, and the ideas and the knowledge about both occupational therapy and how we were understanding and beginning to explore and the faculty were developing the concepts around occupational science was um, just something that I, I could never have conceived of. And so I really, you know, my excitement was fueled and my academic curiosity was fueled. And I began understanding my history in occupational therapy in a very different way. We studied this. The yeah, in the kind of context, right? In a and, way yeah. that maybe previous, um, that's one of the things that we will have explored so far is how in, in many ways, one of the ways that you can describe occupational science is, you know, a uh, earnest kind of formal effort of understanding humans in context in, in multiple layers and really taking on the complexity of what it means to relate to context as occupational beings. And there's almost a paradoxical pendulum swing where some of the medical model is trying to understand human beings out of context. We want to I take away as much as the environmental factors as possible to see how this functions. Occupational science is almost this uh, total pendulum swing in a different direction of, well, wh what does it mean if hockey beings aren't in experimental conditions? What if they're in naturalistic conditions? Yeah. How do they develop? How do they function? And so you, you got almost like a wizard Oz seeing behind the mask in a way of 
how do we contextualize this work? Yeah, and I think a good example of of that, how that evolved with me, as it reflected what was happening within both the profession and the science, um, was I, I went in, you know, interested in developing more practice chops and more and more theoretical knowledge to support my practice you were interested so I, in the more medical model and, and advancing right. the system i think you talked about some of the initial conversations that i think will sound familiar to a lot of us about robotics and uh uh being on the ground floor of the developing of the tech industry i mean 1989 like what a that would have been also like a very fruitful time to go in more of a tech direction um at usc so you had a lot of different options and probably still some prestige in that more traditional yeah. medical model. Yeah. Um, I wonder, did you ever have any, like, do you, do you have any sense of having some resistance to occupational science when it first started coming up or um, what, what do you think it was that sort of got you through that initial stages of disorienting type dilemmas? How did you <laughs> kind of stay with it? Well, um, it was, it was, you know, certainly a combination of factors. Um, I, I did work in a robotics lab, uh, with, uh, Ruth under Ruth Zimke's direction and, um, did my master's thesis in a super experimental, isolating, you know, precision tasks, you know, how, how much, you know, how much influence does this position have on a precision action that that arose out of watching a dental hygienist work on my teeth um, and having a conversation with her about carpal tunnel and um, and tendonitis and and yet you know people persisted doing it and so it was like okay here I am you know boiling this behavior down to this and part of what I realized through the other discussions that we were having and and Dr. Zemke's uh, tutelage was this is isolating this out of the context of what we're doing and is giving us some information, but how valid is the information? And simultaneously, I was being fascinated by how anthropology was giving us insights into occupation how cognitive psychology was giving us insights into occupation, how neuroscience was giving us those and, and participating in discussions in these interdisciplinary rooms that were absolutely fascinating and simultaneously being exposed uh, by Dr. Galia Frank to qualitative and narrative methods of knowing and realizing that there's a lot about occupational therapy that we can't know through this isolation and decontextualization and scientific control. Something that we're losing while gaining that more esteemed scientific credibility. Right. And, and in some ways, we're actually losing that very occupation that we're seeking to elicit in some ways or, yeah. or could be, you know, we're actually taking the therapy out <laughs> as we're trying to advance it. And there's kind of a paradox in that. Do you think that in some ways it helps having the prestige and sort of the formal permission in, in these structures? Like, I think that that is, it's sort of, um, 
I think it's a controversial legacy of how occupational science has developed across um, across the world as something that has been fed and fueled by um, more of these academic-based apart- departments that we're all now increasingly more well aware of how a lot, most of our social infrastructure across the world is designed to be more exclusive and to privilege certain perspectives over others. And that's part of why we're building this container here and why we're taking on in AOTA's 2025 vision. How do we work on um, where there are imbalanced structures? There's a paradox too, in that I think I'm curious your thoughts on this because in my mind, I'm putting together that there might've been something about having the status of something like USC and having those esteemed founders, the fact that they were in a position of authority in some ways and that they were able to give you permission to sort of play and to take some of these perspectives out of uh, that. And I guess I'm starting to see that, you know, privilege, as much as it is a not good part of our social structures, it's not so good just to deny that because I think we also have to look at it and see that that's where we have agency and where we can develop that those of us that are entering this conversation with some privilege, with credentials, with this, we also need to see the value and invitation that that's offered and how we can now use that to rebalance these structures. Um, I'm just imagining if I was in your position, knowing that I had the permission of my supervisors to think about things through an anthropological lens or to open up a qualitative box. I think that would help me feel invested in learning about what that perspective had to offer. I'm just curious what you think about that. Oh, it's huge. Um, and um, one of the things, again, that I is that sometimes I think I'm a slow learner um, because uh you know, one of the things that I've looked at in the context of that phenomenal educational experience um, is the role of privilege in getting me there. Um, um, you know, being a male in occupational therapy um, brings with it certain benefits. Um, having grown up, you know, white in South Carolina, um, you know, the son of a physician, um, very clear and obvious privileges that um, took me to places that I wouldn't have gotten to. I'm fairly certain had my circumstances been um, different and mm-hmm. less, you know, less privileged. And, and so thinking about how that affected the opportunity that I had at USC and how that has influenced occupational science um, for all the participants who've been able to go there um, has definitely been something that I've thought about, particularly in the the last few years of social justice work um, and how that has, again, given me new insights into different schools of thought on this but one of the things that I have experienced by you know bearing witness to some of these conversations is that um, it seems to be really helpful when we adopt a social or occupational justice lens that there isn't necessarily um, a um, I almost want to use the word sin but just the existence of privilege can also be somewhat neutral 
in that the goal of many of our social justice movements and our efforts is actually to extend the experience of privilege. So it's not necessarily that if you're born into circumstances where the structures really honor and fuel your strengths, it really, it comes to that point of agency of of what do we choose to do with this privilege that we do have, which Mm -hmm. all of us, even if you're coming into this course from even a more minotaur status, it probably isn't um, unfamiliar to you to know that, oh, wow, if you are somebody in a more monetized um, or marginalized status, being able to go up through these rungs where you do earn credentials or ways that you are honored, that comes with this question of how do we wield this privilege that we have? And I'm not saying it's perfect. I think we're all in a growth and process. Um, but I really think it's an amazing thing that um, the occupational science tradition through its founding, and I think more and more with this invitation that we'll explore in our other interview in this section, we have the opportunity to think about how do we use our privilege, how do we use our agencies to expand who gets access to this pie. Mm-hmm. And um, what I'm hoping and what I loved um, about you kind of acknowledging that there was something helpful about feeling like you had formal permission as a student to engage in these questions. Um, because I feel like what I, I feel sort of connected to um, your story in a way, John, because it sounds like you humbly stumbled into the ground floor of this um, amazing moment for the development of occupational science. And I feel like I was just going to that conference two years ago. I kind of got to stumble in on the ground floor of the creation of a journal that's going to be here in the United States. And you opened a door for me that wasn't supposed to be in that space. Like there's some parts of occupational science that can still be a little bit um, questioning of how inclusive do we make the science. And by and large, you still see that majority of the actors and they're engaging in this are wanting to broaden and open up who gets to participate in this effort. And so I I just really feel affirmed that um, as being somebody that carries and acknowledges the privilege and I aspire to be somebody like that Mm. is also then I've given I've given access to this wonderful gift how do I increase access to it how do I and also be open and humble to learning to see this thing this this uh evolve right and that we all get to be lifelong learners and I just feel so privileged that I've gotten to connect with you and get kind of a role model of what it can look like to um give these gifts out to the community and Maybe you can speak to, too, like how you found yourself kind of on the ground floor of this and you end up going then from a master's to, you know, they created a space for you, too, because part of it, you said, I wasn't that strong of a student. Uh, I had to beg, borrow and steal to get into occupational therapy school from the beginning. So they created an opening for you. And then here they created an opening at USC. Yeah. Um, how have well, you? Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, the, you know, circumstances had changed, you know, again, I'd proven myself in, in my career and, um, uh, you know, again, uh, I was fortunate to score well <laughs> on the GRE, um, and, and, and I had done well in OT school, you know, I had a good academic record, uh, not sterling, but, um, quite respectable from OT school and, um, you know, and, and it had been 12 years. And so they were looking at me in a, in a very different light, I think. Um, and I had skills that could fulfill a role they needed, the teaching assistant role. Um, so, so that all sort of fell into place. And, um, 
and if I if I vary from answering your question, please read. No, that's fine. No, go for it. But um, but the you know the PhD was brand new. It was untested. It it was certainly not proven yet that it was going to work. It looked like it was going to because we had a really bright group of. Uh, first students and, and the faculty was very enthusiastic and um, had developed a, a strong curriculum. Um, but, you know, they, they were needing to recruit doctoral students as well, you know, to build the, to build the cohort. And, um, and so I think I, again, I was, I was at there at a fortunate time uh, and I wanted it. I, I had been so stimulated by the the first year in the master or the one year in the master's curriculum that I really wanted more and um, was, yeah, was very excited. Like about exciting, what I was, empowering, humbling. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so as I, as I moved into the doctorate and it, it gave me the opportunity to move into uh you know, higher education and teaching occupational therapy students. Um, again, a, a wide range of experiences there and, um, and learning from colleagues and, and being attuned to the theoretical world of occupational therapy, which I had never paid much attention to in my practice focused career. Is um, that, it sounds like your OT educators at the time maybe didn't get opportunity to have much exposure to well, just in and of themselves in 1976 we had very little ot theory uh, oh, i mean we didn't have any phds right i mean this is part of soon. what i'm hoping to contextualize too the fact that um from the when founding applied, of yeah yeah when i applied for my master's program there were three phds in occupational therapy in the country and that's part of the structural um, barriers that in, in the beginning of the development of academia in the United States and development of the Western medical system in the United States and the development of the mental health system in the United States, um, women were systematically marginalized from participating in Absolutely. education, Absolutely. which I think this is a good opportunity, too, in, in having that conversation about systemic privilege and how we relate to it of occupational therapists and occupational therapy um occupational scientists is um like we've drawn in that correlation and i know that you've felt um somewhat a historical kinship to adolf meyer and some of his arc and he and remind me is it william dutton uh william dutton yes I got the name right. Okay, yeah. very good. So Adolf Meyer and William Dunton are considered two of the founding fathers of occupational mm -hmm. therapy. And we really, it can be a mixed legacy. The fact that they were privileged at that time in the development of the academic infrastructures and the social infrastructures and what it need, needed to get um, programs financed from the philanthropic stakeholders, from the academic stakeholders, Occupational therapy has always had to partner almost an allyship with um, with men of stature and privilege that could understand the value of occupation, that can see the occupation, and that can sort of champion our cause. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about 100 years ago. This was when uh, the suffrage 
suffragettes and, and first and second wave feminism had to escalate to the point of um, violence and irreparable self-harm just to get the right to vote, let alone the right to develop the theoretical, you know, <laughs> grounding. Even today, it's obviously a stirring controversy that people of color could have insight into the theoretical, right. um, you know, positioning of these questions. That is a, you know, being able to be a scientist, to be a theorist is not a power that's ever been trusted in Western civilization to be held outside of a very exclusive group of people. Yeah. And so in order to survive, unfortunately, in the current structures that we're a part of, occupational therapy to stay alive through this has had to partner in allyship with men that can champion our cause. And what we're creating right now is an opportunity to maybe have different choices, to see if we can recalibrate and make that look differently, to have yeah. some autonomy, to have some agency, not just as women, but as frontline providers and for occupational beings and, and maybe question what it looks like for our clients to be the leading role in determining how our theory develops and yeah. um, how our practices. That's that's really where occupational science is steering us to look like, in part because it has invested in becoming inclusive for the past 30 years. Yeah. and. Um, and again, the the exposure, you know, in the early 90s to um, how qualitative methodologies could enrich our understanding of the role of occupation in a person's life. Uh, and it took about 10 years for uh, the idea of mixed methods research to really filter into o OT and occupational science in a way that was um sort of approved and sanctioned formally and, embraced and, and formally embraced um but but those new new ways of knowing um really expanding the potential for us to build a stronger and stronger theoretical base um but the point that i was making is that you know kielhofner was just beginning to work on his model of human occupation in the mid seventies. Um, and I think he's, I think his first publication was 1978. Um, uh, if that early, um, or his first uh, text on it. Um, but at any rate, the, you know, there wasn't a theoretical base and, or, or there was, but it was built on, uh, psychiatry and medicine and biology and psychology. It, it came from other fields, in other words. So it it's took, like took us those, took us those, uh, 20 years to, to begin building a stronger and stronger foundation. And I know, uh, you know, my colleague Steve Park, uh, introduced me to the Canadian model of occupational performance mm -hmm. and my first exposure to the person environment occupation. Um, interaction and and how that has grounded so many theoretical models that we have and and I began to see the power of that and being excited about being able to share that with students and give them more thinking tools um, and how occupational science provided both specific tools for thinking and a foundation underneath both some past models and upcoming models for an even stronger understanding of how people function as occupational beings. 
And I think uh, that notion of a basic science too, which if you're not privy to those conversations, like I, so much of us that go through our K through 12 education, maybe associates education and bachelor's education, um, so much of the structure of those educational environments is um, you get kind of synthesize a summary of what the, you know, those that are on the scientists that are in those Ivy Towers, that the conversations they get privy to where sciences may be a bit messier and you learn about the methodologies and you learn about epistemology and you learn about kind of what it means when science is more in its raw form and its active state. Those aren't usually conversations that you get access to as an associate through bachelor's level student in higher education, they, because it's kind of dangerous, you don't really want everybody just experimenting with chemicals all over the place. Um, it, it's kind of rare to get exposed to even what it means that something's a basic science yeah. or something is an applied science. And uh, I'm thinking too, to put in the context, if you're talking about the late seventies and early eighties, you know, the internet, was barely a thing that existed. And to the extent that it existed, it wouldn't have been accessible either to most no. people. So no. to think about if you, if you had, you know, say Kilhoffner developing this work, just how is that work going to go from, I think he was at USC. How is that going to go to the masses? How are you going to get that out to the therapist? How, you know, it's like even the, you know, dynamic OT educators probably at that time that were teaching at the bachelor's and certificated level, um, they probably also were at a systemic advantage of even being able to translate the language of what Kiel Hoffner was putting out there. Right. I, I think that just speaks to the need to um, democratize and make some of this terminology more accessible so that we can actually take advantage to of all the work that we have done. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to uh, a point of uh, clarification. Kiel Hoffner was a master student at USC and Mary Riley was a powerful inspiration for him to begin learning about occupation and, um, and she called it occupational behavior and it evolved mm -hmm. into um, his model of human occupation um, along with Janice Burke um, in their writings. But he got his PhD from UCLA. Actually. Oh, okay. And, um, and, uh, did some very interesting work around disabilities um, that, you know, could be considered some early disability studies work in occupational therapy because um, he was very interested in uh, people with intellectual and dis developmental disabilities and how they functioned um, more independently in society and what adapt adaptive skills and tools they used. Um, his relationship yeah, was to the medical model because in a way I almost wonder how similar um, his and your arc maybe could be in some ways because it I, I need to learn more about Kel Hoffner but it does seem like he also took on increasingly more of the lens of um, rights disability rights oh, and, yeah. and advocacy and um, shifting from more of a pure theoretical and you know philosophically robust logic kind of orientation. So then also considering, well, what does it mean to adapt our theory and our uh, understandings of occupational beings uh, in a way that is meaningful to them, that, that connects and is, you know, genuinely client-centered. Um, I think he's also a great model of having some institutional privilege and then also um, 
wielding that in a way that could create openings to extend that privilege out and giving a voice to others in the process. And I wonder, too, if we can use that to segue into how your work sort of evolved after you got to pick up on sort of these founding threads and um, be one of the first um, cohorts to go through this occupational science education as a clinician. How did that evolve? Like you as an occupational being, but also your interest as an occupational therapist, as an OT educator. How did that end up shaping your practice from this really you know, uh, we established like you, you were really great at the medical model and then you kind of did a very big turn in your focus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, once I understood in through the graduate educational process, what occupation was and what potential it had for transformative experience and particularly for transformative practice both for the practitioner and for the clients of that practitioner, um, I just got more and more excited and, and, and realized that if I could impart some of that to students who are going to be future occupational therapists, then hopefully they would carry that passion and love for what it could provide into their practice and, and help them make an even more influential impact on the lives of their clients. And, uh, and I, I'm confident I've had at least modest success in doing that based on the students that I talked to who graduated um, 20 and 10 and five years ago um, that I got to work with. And, you know, I, I got to work in a curriculum and be an administrator in a curriculum that, that could could play with that, those ideas and, and shape them um, to hopefully do a better and better job of being a transformative educational experience. Do you feel like you got to inherit that role in some ways of being the arbiter of allowing that formal permission to, to explore some of those things? Because I, I think that um, that's often part of the product of the systems that we're coming up in that are very hierarchical and that we do, we are inhabiting systems that privileges some perspectives over others and how we can look at wielding that responsibly. Um, uh, what I was affirmed to know is that you, you noted that there was something about at USC having the status and those um, elders and those facilitators that gave you formal permission to play as a student, as a master's student, as a, as a teacher's. Yeah. A great example was, um, in a doctoral class with Florence Clark, um, our goal was to draw and analyze theoretical perspectives um, into a type of term paper, you know, research paper for the term, um, you know, our, our kind of capstone project for that course. And I had read this fascinating biography of Miles Davis and um, was a bit of a jazz fan and it, I, I kept seeing all these theories that we were studying integrated through his life. And, you know, and it was like, well, that's kind of a risky topic to bring up. And, you know, and I asked her about, well, I'm kind of thinking about doing this. And she said, well, I hear your passion for it. It sounds like 
you've been stimulated to think about how the course material integrates through his life story. And I'd say, go for it. And, you know, it was that kind of permission because it was a pretty different way to pull the paper together. Um, and it was one of my first publications in occupational science because it got published in their, uh, the, the first book on occupational science that, um, uh, Dr. Clark and Dr. Zemke wrote or edited. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wonderful. And, um, and it just was a, again, it was just, it, it brought theory to life for me in a very dramatic way. You got to kind of follow where you, you mentioned that this was somewhat of a disorienting dilemma in a way. It was totally causing you to reflect on all your foundational assumptions about how the world works. And you found one thread that gave you that kind of role model or something to look off of, to sort of chase down and play and explore. Right. And that's really, you know, one of, you know, speaking of theories, that's one of the theories of the design of this course is trying to create some space somewhere in our life where we can play with these concepts. Yeah. And it really can help. I think sometimes we need what feels like formal permission. And then I think we almost as just occupational beings in ourselves have to get to a place of giving ourselves permission to explore these things, to develop our own identity, to develop our agency. Um, I'm going to link to um, a lecture from Ruth Zemke that talks a little bit about the history of occupational science in this module. Mm -hmm. And she she talks and reflects about part of, you know, her interest and, and, you know, this founding cohort at USC was that they found that occupational therapy was starting to regrasp its occupational core. However, in order to do so, it was appealing to um, the, the research and the theory that was being developed in, in psychology and, you know, in your context, it was around the fields of anthropology. Um, occupational therapy was at this, uh, you know, this disadvantage to that because I think in part two is that a lot of us really love being clinicians. It, it can be a big transition to, I know that's held me off. I don't, I haven't wanted to pursue a PhD because I, I just wouldn't get to develop as a therapist. I, I really want to get more time in the field. And um, what's amazing about, I think, the gift of occupational science that we have now, because we do have doctorally trained theoreticians and we have, we're making this language more accessible. We don't have to appeal to these other disciplines to give us permission anymore, where they're kind of the gatekeepers of their own theory and their own belief system. Right. Now we have OT ancestors and elders, we have folks like John and Ruth Zemke and Galia Frank and expand that out to Ann Wilcock and how occupational science is developing globally. We now, as inheritors of the OT legacy, we have several layers of formal permission to engage in our own science and our own theory and to create space to play with these as, you know, we're the applied side of this field. And they've not, they've acknowledged that from the beginning of even the USC crowd that occupational therapists are sort of the applied side of the field, which makes it even more important that we have an active relationship to our basic science, to our narrative science. You deserve to be a part of this. And it's part of the spirit of this course is to let you know as a frontline clinician and a student, you now officially have formal permission to engage with these concepts. Uh, wh what do you think about, John? Do you, do you think we're going into an era where it's maybe time to uh, 
give kind of clinicians of all different walks of life and maybe even perspective folks uh, insight into what occupational therapist, occupational science is and maybe what it could be, you know, it's almost this great opportunity. We say it's in an early stages still, but that's almost the best time to get involved, right? Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I really hope so because I, I do think it has great potential. And um, I'll, I'll segue from my last comments to um, to uh, hopefully answer this with another example. Um, but an example was uh, of of the issue of permission and and encouragement. Uh, a student who who graduated from our program when I was first teaching. Um, found OT practice not very fulfilling. Um, and we we had numerous conversations about how how that was affecting her and how it was affecting her clients. And she would talk about, you know, oh, but I go in and volunteer at the same nursing home and I play music and I do people's hair and I love it. And I was like, these are things that you can integrate into your practice. And these are things that will allow that passion for your occupational interest to transfer and motivate your clients. And so, you know, you can help them learn how to take care of their hair and, and their beauty uh, needs. And you can share, you can help them learn how to share music in even simplistic ways. And she she never believed that it was real, that that permission enough. was real. And largely because of the cloying uh, influence of the setting and the fact that she didn't feel like she had permission in her practice setting to do those things. And so her having a course like this, had she had this kind of course, when she, she was struggling with that, Cause I know, yeah. Develop the, the language and the understanding and the evidence base and the Medicare permission to practice in those ways. I think she'd still be an occupational therapist. Instead, she went back to, to uh, beauty work. And, and so that transitions into, uh, an example of how I've seen practitioners who've gotten exposure to occupational science through their interest in occupational justice work that they first call social justice work in criminal justice settings. And uh, the justice-based occupational therapy um, interest group has, um, has embraced increasingly a larger and larger number of practitioners who are doing work in criminal justice to help give them that language and to support them with evidence and uh, to share practice resources um, across these settings where people are working in jails, prisons, um, and other correctional settings and using occupational in powerful ways to help transform the lives of the people who are incarcerated or transitioning into parole and, and trying to live in a civilian world that is not friendly to people with a record. Uh, and that's been a very occupational helpful. process where, it, and it, 
that I think comes from when you understand humans as occupational beings and when you understand the systems that we're living in as transactional, it doesn't even matter if you have the formal words to describe it. It's sort of going to take place that you can have a mutually transformative experience as an occupational being interacting with these systems and that we are, even if you classify it as occupational or not, part of this basic science is it sort of elucidates what's taking place when you understand that there's interrelationship between the um, material world and the structures we inhabit and the subjective and qualitative elements that are in place. There's uh, structure and there's agency, and they're in a mutual dialectic that reinforces each other. And that's just part of the scientific process. And we're increasingly, increasingly getting better methodologies that are actually elucidating that this is likely taking place. Problem with the qualitative things is they don't like being studied. (laughs) They don't like being pegged down. They're in, uh, they're, they're live and they're in the moment. So if you can't capture it in the moment accurately, it's gone. So we're never going to get that certainty that we lust after in a very, um, uh, deductive, uh, what you call reductionistic structural centered scientist. It really loves certainty. It loves knowing the hard edges of things. The problem is the natural world doesn't love hard edges of yeah. things and it yeah. doesn't like to stay put and be exactly but, where it was. When we left it. Yeah. But, but I think, um, I think there's promising work that's happening out there. Um, again, uh, Chiximihai was one, one of my first and most powerful uh, examples in his work as a psychologist in flow and developing the concept of flow and how relevant that is for us as occupational therapists and occupational scientists, because that's what we're help we're helping and seeking our clients to move into is, is to be fulfilled and to, to have, you know, peak experiences uh, through the things that they do with their time. And, and he took, a very subjective experience and quantified it adequately to, you know, to reach the heights of, of, you know, knowledge and influence in the world of psychology, which is a very demanding, you know, quantitative world uh, still, although qualitative is, is, is leaking into it from the sides. And so again, I think those are opportunities that, that we have, Taking on, so I, I guess at this point that you're watching this lecture, you will have seen my occupational profile and kind of my own disorienting dilemma coming from more of a higher science uh, background initially. I mean, as hard as biology can get, but uh, it is, um, it, I come from a tradition, an intellectual tradition, and uh, this is one of the things I wanted to actually discuss with you a little bit, John, too, is um, it uh, sorry, when you come from a tradition, the tradition I came from was wanting actually to barricade off qualitative data just because it was too hard. Yeah. It, it was just too hard to imagine what methodologies were needed to take that into account. And the way that biologists were under funding constraints and navigating these structures is that they needed to make the samples as efficient and easy to publish as possible and as low stakes. And so we wouldn't take on qualitative questions, not because they weren't scientifically robust enough. It's just because we didn't have the measures to do it and we didn't have a way to cheaply do it. And so there's almost a sense in some of the more hard science backgrounds. I feel like I can speak to that as somebody with a bachelor's degree in um, 
field biology and evolutionary theory. It's almost this, like, it's been rebranded of, like, okay, well, we can sidestep the qualitative because it's not good enough for us. It's not hard enough for us. It's not hard science enough. But I'll tell you as an insider is that we've also just kind of sidestepped it because it was too hard. And just because it's too hard, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it, have a, it doesn't have a causal impact on the universe. You know, really, one of the things that evolutionary theory taught me is that um, things that sustain over evolutionary time, kind of hard to sustain over evolutionary time. It has some sort of functional purpose if it's there. And it's qualitative, especially as humans are, and how richly, you know, we value our subjective and qualitative experience, if that didn't have some sort of causal impact on how humans are able to adapt to our environments and function within them, you know, it would be gone because energy is not easy to come by in the natural world. You don't expend it (laughs) on things and and brains and, and symbolic and culture. It's very expensive to do that. So, you know, I, I think that's what I think I love about occupational science is it's very daring to be open to take on the challenge of what it means to understand the qualitative domain scientifically and in relation to um, not just, you know, past, you know, primates or ancestral humans, but present day humans. What does it mean in the current context? And for folks that are maybe living a non-standard life, they don't have the same body, they're experiencing illness, injury, disability, that adds a whole other layer of complexity on top of it. Um, So I think really, I just, I want to like congratulate everybody in occupational science for taking on some of the hardest questions. And I, I think that we should really feel proud of that as inheritors, as the clinicians that get to be on the applied side of this field is not only are we not. Uh, not scientific, but we are taking on some of the hardest science to do, and we're willing to let that be an open question and to admit that we may not have the methodologies down yet. We're still developing them, and we're also open to doing that collaboratively when most disciplines are usually kind of barricading off and wanting to keep everything prioritized. Occupational science is also saying, you know what? These are big enough questions that I think we need more than just us. Can you join us? And clients, can you be there? I just want to, yay, it's so good. Yeah, and and I think practitioners uh, can help help provide an anchor point um, for occupational science to move in in ways that do function to serve practice more directly. Um, I mean, that's where a lot of it has come from. For example, Dr. Florence Clark and the USC team uh, conducted the USC Well Elder Study, first published in 1996, uh, lead issue on gerontology in uh, the Journal of American Medical Association. Uh, Again, a a breakthrough piece of research that has been replicated many times and shown how not only the role of occupation and occupational scientific knowledge uh, grounds a powerful occupational therapy practice program with people living well to keep them well, but that it persists over time much better than the comparative methods, uh, treatment methods. And, um, and it integrated qualitative and quantitative methodology. So once again, one of the things that enriched the numbers that they collected were the stories of the people 
whose lives were dramatically changed and enhanced. You know, uh, uh, you know, a, a grandmother who got the courage through the OT support to ride the bus again so she could visit her grandchildren. Um, and, you know, and, and people taking art courses, artists who had given up on art, who, who got the courage to go out and take art courses because they understood how it could influence their own health. Uh, powerful, powerful yeah. uh, research that I hope every occupational therapist will know uh, and use to support their work. Which I wonder too, John, because you had such a robust foundation in the medical model by the time that you went into USC too, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll say yes to this question. By embracing the occupational science lens, do you think that you've had to compromise that medical model even one bit? Or is that something that you've gotten to kind of take with the good parts of that with you? No, you I just add something on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Um, well, I, I think some people might say that there was some compromise. Um, but my interpretation in retrospect now uh, of, you know, 30 years of teaching uh, and some practice along the way integrated with that is that, um, well, I mostly taught the physical rehabilitation components uh, in, in the curricula. And um, I think what I was able to do, not as well as I wish I had in retrospect, but I think fairly well is keep occupation's role in helping people improve their physical health and rehabilitative recovery at the forefront um, as an important and useful tool for for that kind of rehabilitative and medical based practice because knowing that the majority of our of those jobs that they were going to get were going to be in those settings I mean, I think that the medical model, even by the principle, the historical context that it grew out of, it, it, it can be one of the places where that it that can still be some of the more occupationally de- deprived and can really utilize that lens of it can be a place where a lot of occupational deprivation is experienced. I mean, that's clear to see in a lot of incarceration populations and refugee populations and um at the same time, like I remember hearing, I'll probably talk about this a little bit when we talk about um, Jane Goodall, who had a legacy with, you know, you, uh, sorry, USC. Yeah. Uh, I forget, University of Southern California. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing her speak about finding out about chimpanzees that were being studied in university settings without any um, connection to materials and engagement. And she pivoted from doing field biology to championing the quality of life of chimpanzees that were living in contained and institutionalized formal experimental settings and really shifting to focus on their quality of life and knowing that she got to you know, develop an appreciation for the rich complexity of the lived experience of chimpanzees. And when I heard her speak about that, it gave me some grief that like, you know, it's almost easier to see and champion and see how that would be necessary for chimpanzees that have been, you know, torn out of their natural environment and, and deprived of any connection to each other and things that are meaningful. But I'll be honest, 
I feel like I see that every day that I go into a hospital and that I'm working in the skilled nursing facilities or some of the school-based practice settings, it's interesting that it's still hard to adopt that same lens and level of a need for immediate action to bring occupation into our medical settings, into our educational settings, where um, I'm not to demean or devalue the occupational needs of other non-human creatures, but these are also human beings <laughs> that, that yeah. deserve this uh, perspective. And I, I guess what I will say, at least from my own experience, as coming into the conversations about occupational science with some formal like biology training, I don't feel like I've necessarily been pushed to a point that I have to abandon my previous biology frame of reference or all that I've invested in being a medical therapist, that it's actually once you really learn to engage with it, they can be symbiotic and compatible perspectives. You can actually build off of all the knowledge you invested so far. It's adding that lens and almost that like frosting of occupation on top of it. So I don't think we have to look at occupational science as something that's mutually exclusive with the other traditions of thought that we've already built. I am curious what you think about that, John. Well, as we're getting the opportunity to learn again, uh, as humans often have to be exposed many times to lessons and to learn them, of the power of the strength of diversity. Mm. Um, in improving communities, in improving uh, systems, uh, improving theory and ideas, the, the more diverse input there is, the stronger the outcome in almost all cases. And I, that's been my experience with occupational science and occupational therapy, that the more we work together and the more we integrate our shared knowledge and respect that knowledge for where it's coming from. So that I would never condemn a highly medical model practitioner uh, or, you know, someone who's focusing almost exclusively on sensory processing in their pediatric practice or adult practice, because they know a lot about that that can help me understand how that occupation responds to that intervention. And hopefully they will pick up some interest and passion from me about the role of occupation in enhancing that interaction um, or celebrating yeah. how they use that, you know, the sensory processing therapist with play. Wow, what a powerful way to use occupation even if you're following so i think that's one way of saying this it's like there's still some val really valid insight that experimental reductionistic scientific inquiry can offer us and in bringing that back to how we understand humans as occupational beings and in basic science so say the things that have continued on in the tradition of um of airs work and, and sensory integration as they've been also exploring what it means to understand sensory systems and to test those hypotheses with more traditional experimental methods rather than just qualitative methods, the insight that we get from the outcomes of that research, it still comes back to the context of humans and occupational beings. And we get to reconcile with what the data and exploration that they get in that context. What does that mean when we put humans into context? And it's something that I'm sure everybody here, as you explore, and what I love about occupational science is um, 
we as clinicians, we get to validate the measurable, more physical, more mechanistic outcomes that our clients value and what they um, what they want to make progress on. At the same time, we also get to use qualitative measures and qualitative assessment tools to ask, you know, well, what does this mean to you in context? Why do you want increased range of motion in your arm? Or what would it mean that you're a low registration sensory system? What sort of environments and contextual factors and um, what is meaningful to you? Maybe you're, um, maybe you're sensory sensitive, but you also want to explore jazz. How do we support you in context in being in a rich sensory environment? Um, it's not, it's something that can, in my mind, it can be symbiotic and it can be compatible to embrace an occupational science perspective with some of these more traditional frame of, frames of reference. They ultimately are going to circle back to being connected to occupational beings and their quality of life. Because whether you like it or not, if you're a treating and field occupational therapist, you're working with humans in the field. We're not really working with humans in experimental conditions. Right. <laughs> so right. you get to contextualize this work in context, and now you have the language to um, classify it as its own distinct science base. Um, you mentioned, John, that you have a partner that's a physical therapist, and we probably all know that sometimes there's a tension and uh, interesting things. That's a, I, I highly encourage that as, like, I guess, a disorienting dilemma process because my <laughs> partner is an applied behavioral analyst, an analyst, a board-certified behavioral analyst, and, you know, I was really anti-ABA. I was very I'm concerned about uh, behavioral analysis um, from, you know, that tradition of thought. But being in partnership with him, I've had to learn, well, what's uh, what does behavioral therapy, where did that come from? And what does it have with occupational perspective? And I found even there, this is part of where I think we can be interdisciplinary, is that occupational theme frame of reference where it validates multidisciplinary thought. We can kind of see where the opportunities to infuse occupation within it. And if we're saying that one scientific perspective, like maybe PTs are too biomechanical um, or maybe behaviorists, they're too observational. They're not taking into account the subjective. That's then an opportunity to see, well, how can we then use occupation as a, as a glue to find ways where we're working towards compatible goals that support the well-being of our clients? Um, I feel like occupational science, not only is it not incompatible with other traditional modes of occupational therapy. I think they're also compatible with being able to build collaborative relationships with other disciplines and other um, clinicians. What do you think about, like, how have you been historically situated with OS? What does it mean that we're so collaborative or transdisciplinary or multiple multiple disciplinary? What would you want clinicians to know about that? Um, I guess, first of all, is the value of learning from, you know, our fellow discipline, disciplinarians, the, the different practices have much to teach us. And the more we can also learn from them, I think the more we can sort of get inside their worldview. And the more we can get inside their worldview, then the more, the more we can understand their own occupational needs and desires. And, it, you know, if you bring it back down to, again, the, the Canadian model of occupational performance, what are their occupational performance goals as a professional? And if I can understand that, 
then if I need to work with them on a team to implement a new program that I think is going to be helpful for the clients across the board, then I can appeal to that interest in their goals uh, and their occupational needs. And probably I've also gotten to know them personally and gotten to know that they love to bicycle or they love to quilt or they love to, um, you know, watch a particular Netflix show and can have conversations that, again, build personal alliances at the same time that we're trying to build a professional alliance. Definitely. And that all translates from practice and also scientifically, because then you can also build partnerships with other departments and other um, theorists and therapists to create a more rich understanding of how, what it means to understand humans in a contemporary context. Yeah. Um, and I'll be aware, uh, mindful of both of like uh, your time and everything, because I, I just love this concept and I, I want to continue this conversation on. I'm hoping that students that are taking this can notice and see in some of the stories that John's told here that occupational science scientists are clinicians just like us and also got exposed to theory and occupational science really late or maybe in the middle points of their career and are also, you know, likely going through disorienting dilemmas themselves because the field continues to evolve. And oh, those wow. core assumptions, right, are continually challenged and, and recalibrated. Um, that's one of the um, things that I wanted to bring up before uh, we'll transition uh, at some point, too, is what it means to be part of a legacy. And um, I know you mentioned earlier that uh, Gary Kilhoffner, it's sometimes looked at as kind of like a a not good thing that he built off of some of the foundations that Mary Riley put before him. And I will be honest that it seems like most of what I can chase down, that this is part of um, the structures of academia or just part of being occupational beings in of itself is we tend to build off of the foundation that was laid before us. Yeah. And I wonder too, as we build off a foundation that was laid in our past, there's also this opportunity to look at it differently and to maybe recalibrate or extend or expand that um, we get this gift sometimes of inheriting something that's often imperfect. And it's like a great thing that it's imperfect because that means we get an opportunity to explore and um, shift it and adapt it to the current context we're in. Um, I'm curious um, in one of the things I regret we didn't get to touch on too much is just how much you pivoted from the medical model to taking a sense of the rights and more of the occupational justice aim and that you went from a context where the mental health system was getting divested from and repositioned in more of the incarceration and police context. And little did you know, you went from a very apolitical person to that now actually being kind of the core of your academic work. And you evolved as an occupational being, as somebody that was more apolitical to adopting a broader lens. And I don't know, maybe you can't even avoid seeing your work outside of a political context and even your scientific work outside of a political context. Um, it, it is hard to separate now um, how, what I could do as an educator, as an administrator, as practitioner um it, it was difficult to separate it from the political 
and the, you know the political economy because uh you know anything that we wanted to do in our academic program you know had to be at least budget neutral and you know um and and so you know that that's had a huge influence and and again learning about occupational science from the very from the very many inputs included you know some socio political um analysis and and learning uh that that again helped helped me understand that but the i think the bottom line is that the context is huge the the context is what shapes so much of what happens and so if occupational you look, beings within that context what i'm hearing from what you just said is that even as you adopted roles in more formal positions you kind of couldn't turn that occupational science part of your brain off it, yeah. it became sort of a lens that actually helped you mediate challenges where it wasn't explicitly a therapeutic context. It's more of an educational part context or, um, you know, viewing maybe the whole universal university system as an occupational, um, I forget the term of that, but it's just sort of like a whole occupational enterprise <laughs> yeah. where all yeah. the occupation of beings, it's almost like bees in a hive. And um, that's kind of one of the spirit of this course is that jumping off point that, even if you're finding like with this disorienting demo is like, I can't make time to journal or to meditate or considering these things over time. If you engage with these concepts, it's going to be something that you start to process with in the systems this you're inhabiting already. Yeah. Um, we'll start by seeing yourself as an occupational being, and then you'll start seeing all these other things play out and noting that this perspective is co compatible with everything that exists as part of relativism and, you know, having a yes and approach to information is, it, it's not, you don't have to reject or just go into a tight little box about information. You can sort of explore how this evolves. So unfortunately, whether you like it or not, you might not be able to walk away from occupational science after this because <laughs> it, it's not, and, and you might not be able to not, not see the politics. That was probably a very short focused part of your life that you got to be apolitical and then now it's out of the bag. And, yeah. um, well, do you find that you're, yeah? Uh, you know, I, I think, I think most occupational therapy students, um, and particularly those that have a curriculum that's more strongly occupation based, you know, by the end of the first semester, they're beginning to go, you know, it's hard for me not to see life in a non-occupational way. Um, and, and that's that tends to strengthen as as they go through the educational process um, and learn more theory and more more how to analyze the context and that person environment occupation interaction um, and and i've you know I've thrilled at it because I've always been interested in people's stories and how they talk about what they like to do and what motivates them and what they have passion for. And as, as I learn more about occupational science and the role of occupation, again, that fortunately is being integrated 
slowly and and more steadily into OT education. Um, it, it it just was a powerful way to understand human behavior and human interest and connect with people. Um, and it enhanced practice. You, I, I'm going to jump slightly to go for it. Go for it. another point uh, that you brought up about my evolution uh, from, you know, what I would say it was a more limited medical, more physically focused with, with acknowledgement of the psychosocial component, with acknowledgement of the environment, but not, not a deep honoring of those components to shape the context for the, the clients that I was working with in physical rehab and how that changed to embrace more fully this full interaction of the person environment occupation context and and how that influenced my thinking about the solutions that we would seek together to provide them hopefully with a richer life and and as i learned about occupational justice when when um, dr liz townsend and dr uh, Ann Wilcock developed that notion in the late 90s. Uh, it, you know, it hit me like a brick in a way. It was like, whoa, this is a really practical way to put some of these occupational science ideas into practice. And fortunately had students who were working in a local correctional facility that got us more and more involved over time to where we actually were able to hire some therapists to work in that facility for a couple of days a week. And one of the the delights of my career, um, now that I've been retired a couple of years from academia, but the last few years of my teaching work involved being able to work one to two days a week in that correctional facility as the OT practitioner. And to see the role that occupation played in helping wake up people who had struggled with mental health, with addiction, with criminal activity, and the incarceration dilemma that they had experienced, to wake up to the fact that they might have a life outside of the life that they had lived before. Tools to break out of a you know, a negative cycle of, of incarceration and parole and reincarceration. Um, and the joy, uh, and the joy of supervising students who had learned their lessons about occupation based practice so effectively that they were teaching me about how to integrate occupation more effectively into our life skill classes. And, um, and sometimes I felt like the student. It was, it just was a, it would, it was a, a fantastic way. And unfortunately, the facility had to close, uh, all programming due to COVID. And it's just now beginning to, uh, reintroduce it. So I'm hoping that I might get a chance to do a little bit of fill-in work and student teaching there again. So we'll see how that works out. I just feel from what you're saying, what you just, brought up is like I have this like sense of like even Adolf Meyer just cheering that this was something that 
you know, we've, we've gone through in some ways, I think a, a grief process as a field where we've had these initial aspirations and uh, wanting to cultivate contexts that support the well-being of people that society wants to put away into institutional context. And I think that our, even our founders, even if um, they were in a cultural context that made it really hard to extend that perspective beyond a narrow class of maybe usually European immigrants. And right now we have the opportunity to dream bigger about what it means to yearn for a better life for those that are institutionally housed, those that are put through cycles of incarceration and understanding the co-occupational conservation, uh, uh, co-occupational transformational learning experience that it's helping us as a field as well be in um, in symbiosis with our values and our virtues and to not just have this be lip service that we pay to um, having those initial wishes and dreams to support those that are um, institutionalized to really make good on that promise to um, have community-based programming and to have alternatives to incarceration and mental health sanitariums and, and that, that even though <clears throat> we didn't make good on that in, in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, we may just be in, entering a timeline where choosing to be integrity with those virtues and in, in partnership with the communities that are um, are impacted by, uh, you know, particularly incarceration, being in solidarity with those communities, listening to them and responding um, as members that have privilege in these social systems, we have the invitation today to be a part of making those systems better. And if you are open to that perspectives, have you find, um, have you found that especially after engaging with occupational science, maybe an antidote to cynicism? Do you have some hope and optimism for the potential to con can continue where OT founders left off and in developing solutions to some of the imperfections in the current systems that are in power in the United States and across the globe? Um, how do you feel about the potential for occupational therapy practitioners to be part of a, a rich and optimistic lineage for occupational beings? Well, um... One of the gifts of of my learning over the years um, is how occupational therapy in our practice framework defines the client as you know an individual or an organization or a population and and this was reinforced by the work that Townsend and Wilcock did with occupational justice because they start with the population and how the population is deprived uh, through systemic or political or economic constraints or policies deprived of whole occupational categories of engagement. And when you see that, again, it awakens your political, hopefully your political advocacy and your political activism to say, we need to fight against that so those people can have those opportunities. People should be able to get into nature. People should be able to get an education. People should have access to work. People should not be deprived because of an arbitrary issue like skin color or religion uh, or sexual orientation. Um, I have to do something about that. And 
what can I do as an occupational therapist informed by this understanding? And, and I think that was where some of my joy came from in working in the correctional system was that I was working at a very micro level with a small population of people um, who I felt like we were reclaiming some of our lost potential for. Um, and in the justice-based occupational therapy group, we have a very audacious dream, which is to transform the criminal justice system into a humanitarian uh, rehabilitation uh, and growth opportunity for the people who are introduced into it. Uh, it turns out that it was actually quite expensive to take a more punitive approach, an occupational deprivation approach, right? <laughs> there was a sense that, oh, maybe it will be cheaper if we close down the mental health things. Instead of improving on that model, we took one and it ended up being actually quite expensive yes. to do it that way. Yes. yes. Uh, and maybe even just expensive, too, in, in noting that spiritual domain, that there's a, there's a cost in being out of alignment with many, like, core humanitarian values, which is something that at least uh, occupational therapy claims in the United States and that many of us hold as just helping professions in general. Uh, I just have found that I was losing some of my hope for occupational therapy before I went back to school. That's part of why I went back there is because I was feeling kind of bleak about where was I actually going to get to do ever any occupation-based practices and <laughs> just running into barriers everywhere and it was really uh, getting a chance to engage that lens of occupational science. And yeah. I love that it's been termed that science of hope and trying to point out, you know, where we have agency and where our structures are actually mutable. Um, I think that when you get to one of the critiques of, say, a biological approach or more of the physical reductionistic approach, if you're only looking at structures, all you'll see is structures and everything just looks fixed and set in place. Like you can't do anything about anything. Um, and that's, what's really helpful to have a science of agency as well is because you can see where can structures shift. Um, it's ironic because I was studying evolutionary theory. Evolution is all about change, but the um, lens of inquiry can actually be quite rigid and you don't see any grounds for change. Mm -hmm. um, but here you get to see the small potentials. And even like you're saying on a very small scale that you get to go into um, a, a set of incarceration and make a practical transformative facilitate a mutually transformative experience that humanized members of your community, just like Jane Goodall going in and providing meaningful alternatives for the chimpanzees that were being deprived of their environment, of their comforts. What an amazing and, and gift. Her, yeah. And her recognition that occupational science had an opportunity to contribute to that understanding and her sponsorship um, through the Goodall Foundation Fellowship for Wendy Wood to study occupation in captive chimps, uh, in zoo captive, captive chimps. He made and a correlation how... in that scientific study to also look at the occupational deprivation. Um, I don't know if she used those wordings, but she, she studied, you know, said chimps in captivity, which is like something that clearly is scientific, but also used that insight to also look at how, as, uh, what are the environments we're setting up for older adults and yes. older adults yes. that are experiencing dementia and progressive neurological decline 
um, that was one of those things that did actually gave me hope. I got um, connected to one of her articles while I was studying dementia in that program during COVID. I was working in memory care, which is kind of similar to, um, I hope everybody's enjoying the, the length of this conversation. I know I certainly am, but well, it, may uh, have to, it may have to be delivered in yeah. packages. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's, I'm comfortable with that. So you were mentioning earlier that there was a pendulum between swing between private financing and public financing and how those structures can, um, mediate what's possible for occupational therapy. And I know right now we're going through a critical juncture in the United States where there's almost a little bit more, I guess, in my state, a shift towards privately mediated context. Like I'm finding we're discharging people from hospitals a lot quicker. We are looking at more community-based solutions to pretty complex medical conditions and what I was noting in the um, more corporately owned private memory care facility that I was providing um, technically, what's it called? Mobile outpatient therapy mm. services through Medicare through, um, which has like a hybrid private copay situation. And you, you're, you're able to provide different services with Medicare once you kind of delineate what's covered and not covered. But there's a lot of folks with you know, that maybe traditionally would have been institutionalized or, or living in a long-term care home that are now living in um, assisted living facilities that haven't been quite adapted for that environment. So anyway, I, me working on the ground floor, first time working with memory care, I got acquainted with one of Wendy Wood's articles about, um, you know, the notion of humans in captivity in activity deprivation of chimps in primatology. And here I am in the middle of COVID where we're taking folks with progressive neurological conditions and gross motor deterioration and putting them behind their rooms without any social visual cues, any activities present. And, you know, that article gave me the confidence because, I mean, probably some others have had this experience in the last couple of years, um, physical therapy has been taking on a stronger role in treating ADLs. So I was getting a position where the physical therapy and the physical therapy assistants were working on toileting transfers, shower transfers, adaptive equipment, and even dressing. I was like, what the heck am I even going to work on? Well, I'm trapped in this building. I can't go anywhere during COVID. I'm going to actually read literally to the law what Medicare says our role is. I'm going to read literally what the AOT guidelines are for Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm going to take this article from Wendy Wood and I'm going to build activity programs and I'm going to adapt. I'm going to use like a school-based model of saying, can this person access and participate with the activities group? Because a lot of the um, more advanced dementia folks were being excluded from the activities program because the activities director didn't know how to include them in the activities. So I would show her and break down through activity analysis how how we could adapt some of the activities so that they could at least be present and that they can engage. And that I didn't feel weird about that because as previously in school-based therapists, that was my role. I was there to facilitate and grade by motor and I could bring up where the Medicare guidelines, it, it put me in tension, right, with management. And it was really confusing with my corporate therapy provider but you know how you said that you that they pulled out of arts and crafts because they thought families showed up, they would feel like it was demeaning somehow. Or I was abusive. just yeah. I was just waiting for the families to be able to come in 
and see what I was facilitating from the older adults. Uh, like I had somebody who was a mechanic and he built, um, he built like a really promising mechanic shop. He was such a badge of pride in his occupation that he did that. We could not get him to take a shower to see his life. So one of the things that was interesting was working on bathing goals because a lot of folks with dementia, you can imagine how traumatizing that is to be sort of pushed into a shower room and have all sorts of different people touch you in different ways. And so I would train the staff in doing preparatory activities that were meaningful and calming and sensory activities that were calming for the residents. So like we would have some time with the baby doll. We'd have some time watching puppies running in a field on YouTube or going in and cleaning the shower first, having like, let's clean the shower together and then kind of casually disrobe and get kind of the thing going. And what I would do is I would go from three three people that were needed to facilitate shower that was kind of violent and aggressive to just one person being able to set that person for success up in the shower but with the mechanic what I would do is I would be like hey uh the the contractor put in a shower for the guys they're really upset because there's getting a lot of oil on the upholstery we need them to shower up before they clean out these cars can you investigate the shower make sure they did a good job can you uh can we check out these pipes here and get it set up on you know we might as well do a test through it so I could get him to shower where no one else could shower. And it was because I knew about occupational narrative, occupational history, how to build yeah, off their successes and their yeah. strengths. Yeah. Yeah. That role of occupational identity is so powerful uh, at a time when a person's losing themselves um, through the, through the dementia uh, progression. Yeah. Yeah using Medicare guidelines. I was using occupational science literature. I was using the best practices from AOTA and my goals centered IADL, ADL performance and IADL yeah. performance and yeah. access and participation. Yeah. You have permission because they have built this foundation from us. You get to be part of this legacy. Um, and it's really from the investment of clinicians like mm-hmm. John. There's hundreds of, I mean, I would be interesting to know how many people that have been formally trained in occupational science throughout the globe wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure it's in the hundreds, but yeah. uh, you have 30 years of a lineage that you get to inherit for the first yeah. time. It's something that your OT ancestors wanted for you. Right. And it's a very constructive way to wield privilege in the current context, especially if you're open to learning about it. It's transformed my life in less than two years. Uh, and John, it sounds like it's, I mean, it transformed your whole life path from where you thought you were going, right? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and the and the transformation was was well set in one year of of coursework, but certainly the following years of involvement just continued to build on that transformation, and um, you know has has just been very powerful and prompted me to um, you know engage with others to you know get the Society for Study of Occupation SSO USA. Um, established and, um, and, you know, hopefully successfully operating and, uh, you know, continued involvement with that and, uh, conversations with AOTA about ways that we can bring occupational science more explicitly into the, uh, national conference each year and, mm-hmm. um, and, and just involvement in, in various ways to try to, uh, again, advocate and 
and be active in promotion of ways to get these ideas. So I thank you for giving me this opportunity to share those thoughts and those ideas. And I thank you for making this course available to occupational therapy practitioners, because I think it's, um, it's, it's starting the filling of a gap that um, has been, again, too easy to neglect. And I think this will be a, a great step in that direction. I love, I also got reacquainted more through um, indigenous science, through the lens of occupational science and some of the conversations that were bring up there. And when you connect to some of the more indigenous framings mm-hmm. of developing as an occupational being, um, we, we, I, I do think we have a right to our lineage and our, and our connection to our forebearers and our ancestors. And they're mm-hmm. always imperfect. They're always imperfect legacies that we inherit. And I think that this is kind of a, in my mind, it's it's a birthright to occupational therapists to connect to our history, to connect to our legacies, to pick up those threads where they left off. Um, Our OT ancestors didn't get the institutional and the systemic opportunities that we have today. It is objectively easier than it was 100 years ago to have access to these institutions that we come into. Um, at some point, I'll link to a great conversation about OT Trojan horsing, where sometimes <laughs> we get brought in on one premise, but we can kind of bring in occupation in a different way. And I think over time, one of my hopes is that we can be more explicit about being occupation-based. Um, today, we have formal permission from AOT, from our science base to AOT, TA to formal clinical practice guidelines to the occupational therapy practice framework, just about everywhere you can go and every law you can look at. If you look in that lens, you'll find permission to be occupation based. Some cases you'll find requirements to do that, but I'm not here to be a punitive approach to this. (laughs) Um, But we have an invitation that our ancestors didn't have. And so we're sharing this with you. And, you know, John's one of the, he's a really dynamic leader in U.S. base SSO. Like in this other, other interview in this module, we were talking to the executive director of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. That was, you could probably feel in her voice how much she wanted to collaborate with occupational therapists as part of their mission and their goals. It's terrifying and it's scary, the potential that we have to be a transformative force in this country. Um, but, you know, John's made it really clear in this project, you know, I have support to do this work. You have support to do this work. We have a science base that is backing us up. We have infrastructure that's backing it up. We need to find ways to support and build community to resource each other so we feel brave to make good on those initial attentions that Adolf Meyer and Eleanor Clark Schlegel and unnamed um, individuals that experience occupational deprivation and violence at the hands of the initial founding of this country. We get to be a constructive part of healing, facilitating human uh, healing for occupational beings. Um, thank you for holding space for this conversation. And it's something that we mourn the challenge of having this conversation in formal OT education at this time, but we need to make space for this conversation to happen. Um, one of the last things to probably lead off on, John, is you mentioned the Society for Occupational Science here in the U.S. 
what threads do you have insight to? What do you see being developed for clinicians to sort of get involved in the conversation and in developing occupational science? Um, can you contextualize a little bit of sort of the aspirations and, and the wishes for SSO to create openings for clinicians? Yeah. Um, well, the society has always welcomed anyone with an interest in uh, developing and promoting the science of occupation uh, from wherever they come from. So practice, OT practice, uh, we've, you know, have psychologists, geographers, uh, um, anthropologists, medical anthropologists, uh, sociologists um, who've gotten interested in the science and uh, have helped uh, develop the the knowledge base around that and, and published uh, in our field and in their fields about it. And so uh, OT practitioners are always welcome if they have an interest in supporting the development of the science, even if, if you don't feel confident contributing as a researcher yet, I will say that the conversations and the level of dialogue at, at our national conference and in our virtual meetings um, is highly interesting and, and practitioners, some of them do move into a theor- theoretical realm that I, I even can have a hard time keeping up with. Um, but for the most part, they're very practical uh, research papers that are looking at how do people occupy their time? How can this knowledge be used to improve society? Um, whether that be through practice or information that psychologists can benefit from, uh, or just interesting to us as human beings. Uh, you mind if I pitch? We don't know exactly when it's going to be launching, but they're currently developing our own um, occupational science journal in the United States that has part of its mission and vision is um, looking at um, applied research that traditionally has been difficult to find um, venues to publish applied research in occupational science internationally. Um, it's something that AOTA hasn't always wanted to sponsor. It's something the Journal of Occupational Science hasn't always had connected to it, but it's something that a lot of the U.S.-based OS enthusiasts have been interested in, and they've gotten to a point of, like, let's make space to yeah. celebrate this. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, and soon, the, yeah. And my guess is that uh, that journal will probably see the first publication within 18 months. Oh, um, oh. Uh, I, I, I would hope so. Um, and um, currently, uh, you can read about occupational science work in the Journal of Occupational Science and other OT journals like uh, OT Journal of Research, uh, British Journal, Canadian Journal of Occupational Therapy, um, occasional publications that are specifically oriented toward occupational science uh, and or occupational justice as applied through occupational therapy, you know, situations or applied to help improve and inform occupational therapy practice. Uh, the Journal of Occupational Science does not publish those because they're more interested in the theoretical domain, but they're very encouraging of us to begin publication so that if you've done a program that you're inspired to develop and implement because of your understanding of occupation, 
and you feel like that program benefited from it and also can benefit others in learning uh, about how you did that and how occupation enhanced the outcomes of that program, then that would be the kind of write-up that could be published in this SSO USA journal. Um, we don't have a title for it yet. Well, a lot of missions, I think it's a great thing that so much of us want to be in the field. We want to be practicing. We want to be practical. Most of us aren't going to go out of our way to upend our lives and go pursue a four to eight year long PhD uh, for this. But we do have hundreds of people around the world that have taken that leap, that have invested and most of them that I've met are eager to publish and they're eager yeah. to publish things where their ideas that they develop theoretically have the ability to um, see an applied setting and get feedback from the clients and from the clinicians that are engaging in the work. We are going to have a context very soon within 18 months in the United States. It's probably something you would have, you guys would have dreamed of at USC, right? For decades. Yeah. Yeah. And here we get this opportunity on the ground floor to partner with our allies in academia. Because really, even if they're in Ivy Towers, they're our allies. We have shared goals. We want to support occupational beings. We're getting more and more opportunities to take on these partnerships. So this this course here is just a start. I hope you're seeing from this conversation how rich and generous occupational science has been to both John and I as legacy inheritors of clinicians in this field. Um, we're so lucky to have this to support us. We have our own science base. It's just discovering, learning about it, and allowing it to create space for imagining new possibilities, both for us and our clients. I hope you are taking on this conversation and, and seeing hope for our field and um, openness for where you are positioned in occupational therapy history. I hope it fills you with some um, nervousness some excitement and some, um, you, know, you know, openness to consider some new potential. And, you know, right now we're just playing. We're just exploring. There's no real pressure. Uh, but I think I think you would affirm too, John, that even if occupational science is a little scary at first, it ends up being a really delightful perspective to carry with you throughout your day. Oh, it it it, it can be transformative, and and that's what I would. Hope for those of you um, hearing this and and exploring occupational science, maybe for the first time or maybe at a at a deeper level than you've been able to do it before, and the and that you help us realize what I believe is a very hopeful future for occupational therapy that is um, informed, enriched, and uh, supportive of the growth that has has the potential for occupational therapy to be because uh, as Mary Riley said there will always be a need for occupation supported occupational therapy whether occupational therapists are the ones to do it or not remains to be the question and depends on us for optimizing those opportunities and that's what I hope hope for our future yeah, is there anything else that um, you feel like you didn't get a chance to say, or yeah. does that I, feel like a we, good we've been talk, concluding we've been point? Talking, yeah, it's been a delightful conversation. I've really yeah. enjoyed it, and I no, thank you for the good. opportunity. And again, uh, appreciate 
your work, Josie, to make this available to a wider audience. Thank you. Certainly. Thank you so much for your time, John. Okay. Thank you. I'll stop the recording here. <laughs>